This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Show. This is episode 119. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook. Just go to or look for Brian McClanahan on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, at the top of the page. You have all these social media buttons. Go ahead and click those, take you to my social media accounts. And while you're there, go ahead and give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. If you do like the show, you can support it, brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Throw a few pennies my way. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcasts going. And as always, a couple of things. Please, if you do like the podcast, rate it on iTunes. The more ratings, the better. Uh, also, if you have gotten a copy of my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, please go on out to Amazon and leave a review. Again, the more reviews, the better. I know there are there were hundreds and hundreds of you that uh, got the book and, uh, and pre-ordered it, so go on out there, and uh, please, if you've got it, it's not a long read. When you finish it up, go ahead and leave me a review. Uh, the more reviews, the better, and it's always appreciated. Okay. Uh, also, if you read any of my other books, please also re- uh, review those on Amazon, too. I've got many of them, so six. So you've got, uh, if you haven't read all my books, what are you waiting for? Go on out there and get those, too. Um, now, uh, what I want to talk about today is, is again, a topic that is in the news. It's something we, we address. I've seen some headlines on this recently, but uh, there are people worrying that the United States is heading into a potential World War III. And uh, we've got us in, in, I'm going to piggyback this on one of the other parts of the news. You've got all the anthem protests for the NFL and other sports. You know, people are talking about this and, and uh, the NBA or baseball or, you know, whatever it is. People are going to protest. Uh, it started to filter down into the little leagues, you know, little Pop Warner football games and all kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, we're looking at uh, these anthem protests and people are saying, you're disrespecting our veterans you're disrespecting the flag, et cetera, et cetera. And so I want to get into this idea because the military is brought into that. The military is brought into that. We've got a potential situation of a clash with Korea or Iran uh, in the world. And so I want to talk about this general attitude of America towards war. And for those people that are younger, and I'm talking about the people that listen to this podcast, maybe you're in your 20s, uh, maybe you're in your 30s, your early 30s. So if you're in your 20s now, you don't really remember a world where we weren't at war. I mean, so if, if you're if you're 28 years old, uh, you you were a a young uh, middle schooler when the United States went to war in Afghanistan in 2002. Uh, you were you were barely old enough to even even be cognizant of what was going on around you, and so we had the September 11th attacks. In 2001, you were uh, maybe 6th or 7th, maybe 8th grade at that time. If you're in your 30s, you might have been in high school at that time. So you, you still maybe remember a world without war, sort of, because even before that, we have been engaged uh, in wars in the 1990s. And I remember back 
1990 or 91. Now, see, if you're if you're someone in your mid 20s, you weren't even born yet when the United States went into the into the Persian Gulf for the first time. If you're in your mid to early 20s, you don't even remember that at all. Uh, even if you're in your your uh, late 20s, you uh, you really probably don't remember that. I mean, you were just born at that point. Uh, so it's it's not something that you can even uh, think about. Well, yeah, I mean, if you were in your late 20s, you were probably born 1989, 1988, uh, 1990. You don't remember that first Gulf War at all. So your whole world was uh, turned upside down by uh, this invasion of Iraq. But that's become standard. This, this perception of the military uh, and perception of American patriotism, quote-unquote, has become standard because of this 15-year running war in the Middle East. And if you want to go back to 1990, we basically have been in the Middle East for 27 years. So for 27 years, we've had a, a, a culture in the United States that's been uh, pro-military. I think it's the best way you can describe it, pro-military. And I think this is an overreaction to what's often called the Vietnam Syndrome. Uh, I was just the other day watching a few clips from Rambo, First Blood. And I, and I remember, first of all, I love watching that because it's so 80s. And it, remi- it just reminds me of the 80s so much. And the 80s are great. And uh, the filmmaking is so 80s. And it's just so cool. But you've got uh, you know, John Rambo as this Vietnam vet. And he's not he's disrespected by the police there in this little podunk town, wherever he was. And uh, I can't remember what the name of the town was and what state he was in in the film. But he's disrespected by the police. They're making fun of the fact he's wearing his his green uh, jacket from the military, from the army. Uh, and uh, you've had this different kind of climate. Now you now all you see on the television and if they do shows about the military, it's very pro-military. And that's a 30 year shift. We're talking about Rambo was 1982. Uh, so within 35 years, you've gotten a major shift in the way we perceive the military because at the end of the Vietnam War, soldiers were disrespected quite quite a lot by the people in the United States. So not everybody, uh, not everyone did that, but you didn't have, you know, Vietnam vets were not the most respected people. And so you've had this, I think, in some ways, uh, overreaction to that in America to uh, overcompensate for the disrespect that veterans faced. Look, people were drafted to go to Vietnam. They couldn't help it. You did have a, a large number of volunteers, but you did have the draft, of course, and people that went to Vietnam uh, were going there because they were told to by the U.S. government. We can talk about a draft, whether that's constitutional or not, in some other podcast, but uh, that's the situation. So what I want to do in this particular podcast is talk about American wars in the long view in terms of popular support for American wars. We see now, I mean, again, the anthem protests, we've got World War III, and people are very militaristic now. They want to go out and send the military out. Let's go bomb this country and bomb that country. Go take care of this dictator. Go take care of Rocket Man. Go take care of, uh, you know, some Iranian Shah somewhere. Go take care of all these guys. we got to do this because we've got a big military, and when you got a big military, you got to use it. I mean, why pay for all these bombs and rifles and soldiers and tanks and airplanes and warships if you can't shoot them? I mean... 
uh, anyone that's ever possessed firearms or anything, you know that when you get a firearm and you get some ammunition for it, well, you got to go shoot it. It isn't any fun to have it unless you can shoot it. And, uh, I mean, you, you got to go use the stuff. If you're going to build a bomb, well, you have to drop it on something. Uh, if you're going to build a big warship, you got to sail around somewhere and shoot at something. It's no fun not to. Uh, what's the fun of having an aircraft carrier if you can't launch airplanes out somewhere and fly sorties? Uh, what fun is it years ago when battleships were actually useful? What fun was it to have a, a battleship with uh, three turrets of three 16-inch guns on each where you couldn't go out and and just launch lob shells uh, at somebody? I mean, you got to do this stuff. It's more fun to shoot these things. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, look, if you have Tomahawk missiles, you got to fire them at stuff. Uh, this is more fun. So uh, when you have a military with these type of capabilities, well, you got to use the stuff. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, it's uh, target practice only lasts for so long. The joy is only so great. Uh, and then you got to go out and find some live targets to go hit at some point. So uh, this is where, uh, you know, military spending creates wars. It does, without question. Uh, the more you spend on your military, the higher likely, higher likely uh, likelihood you are of going to, going to go to war with somebody because... Hey, guess what? We got this stuff, and we're going to use it. We're going to send it somewhere, and we're going to shoot at people. Uh, the British knew this very well. The Spanish knew it in their empire. The Romans, the Greeks, whoever had a very large military, the Persians, uh, they're going to go use the military, and they're going to go attack people because that's what militaries do. So the question is, though, how much of Americans really supported war throughout American history? Have wars been popular uh, this is a question that I think people would be awful surprised to hear the answer to. Because we often think that World War II is the typical response to war for Americans, not the atypical response. Or, better yet, we think the last 15 years in Afghanistan and the way Americans have reacted to the war on terror is the typical response from American citizens when it comes to war, not the atypical response. Well, they're sorely mistaken. In fact, I think, again, this is an overcompensation for what's often called the Vietnam Syndrome. And not only that, it's because Americans have been led to believe that World War II was the standard. And we've had, of course, World War II vets around. We still have them around. Uh, there's still some of them. They're, they're getting very elderly now. But we've got World War II vets around, and uh, you know we beat back the Nazis and beat back totalitarian governments, only to, of course, get one here in America. But, hey, who cares? Uh, we beat them back over in Europe, and uh, we spent all this money and all these things, and we're the good guys, rah, rah, we won. And of course, uh, we see World War If you go into your bookstore, you have two sections that have a lot of books in your history section. One is going to be the quote-unquote Civil War. One is going to be World War II. Uh, so these are the two things. If you watch the History Channel, you're going to see countless uh, documentaries on Hitler and uh, beating Hitler in the European theater during World War II and how great Abraham Lincoln was. These are the two things you're going to get. And your, your perspective on war is going to be Americans have always enthusiastically supported war. This is what we've always done. This is it. We're going to go out there. We're going to be just like these greatest generation people. We're going to sacrifice all for the good of America. And But the problem is that is the exception rather than the rule. In fact, even before World War II began, there was a lot of resistance to the war. It was only because of the way the United States was brought into the war that you had a, a fair amount of or at least, uh, I should say fair, I'll be, I'll be honest, almost a unanimous support for the war among the American population. 
That is really the only time in American history you've really ever had that. So let's go back. Let's look at our wars. So we'll start with the American War for Independence. Uh, I'm not going to go back to the colonial period with the French and Indian War. Uh, but we'll go to the and, and some of the other wars that were going on in the colonial period, whether it was you know King George's War and uh, you know Queen Anne's War and uh, these other things. Uh, I, I want to focus on uh, the American War for Independence. Now, at that particular time, if historians have tried to look at the situation in America, and what they've generally concluded is you had about a third on each side. You had about a third that were for independence, un, un, unconditional independence. You had about a third that were against it and supporting the British, and then you had about a third in the middle. And you had a lot of people suffering because of this war. That war was not very popular. One of the reasons why Tom Paine had to go back to Philadelphia in, uh, in December of 1776 to write The American Crisis was because America was in crisis. It wasn't certain that people were going to keep supporting this war. And you had uh, soldiers talking about leaving after their one-year enlistments were up and going back home and saying, forget the war, we're out. Uh, if you can't pay us right, we're not going to do this anymore. And so Tom Paine goes back to Philadelphia and he writes the American crisis. When he got back to Philadelphia, people were, were you know just abandoning the cause like crazy. They didn't want to be part of this. The Congress had already had to relocate. Uh, so there was a, a major question about whether this war was even useful. Uh, people in New York were suffering terrible deprivations because of the war. In fact, I think you could probably say that uh, some of the areas that had the most ardent uh, most extensive pockets of ardent patriots were in the South, uh, places like North Carolina and South Carolina. You had large numbers of, of patriots because of the occupation of those areas and the terrible things the British were doing to their citizens. Anytime you had that situation, for example, when the Hessians moved in uh, to New York, uh, you started seeing more and more support for the war because this was the heavy hand of the British. This was the hard hand of war. And people tended to go and say, all right, we're going to support the Americans because of this. But the war was not very popular. Uh, it's, it's a miracle, as George Washington said, it was almost a miracle. I say it was a miracle that the United States was actually able to gain uh, their independence from, from the British at that point. So that war, I mean, again, we look back on it and we think everybody was a patriot. No, a good percentage of the population was not. They didn't support the war. They didn't want it. They didn't care about it. They didn't think it was a good idea. And so there was a tremendous amount of opposition to that particular war, even among Americans uh, who may have been uh, at least agreeable that the American grievances should be at least addressed. They weren't necessarily certain that war was the right policy. Uh, and for those people that say, well, we don't, the, the secessionists in, uh, in 1861 were just a bunch of hotheads, well, guess what? The same thing could be said about the Patriots of 1776. They were just a bunch of hotheads who uh, weren't willing to wait for the situation to get any better. Uh, it's the same thing. Okay, so that war, uh, not a whole, it wasn't very popular. War of 1812, substantial opposition to the War of 1812 uh, in New England in particular, where they called it Mr. Madison's War. And you had uh, large swaths of the population essentially engaging in treason by helping the British. Uh, in New England, there was talk of New England secession. Uh, this war was very unpopular in New England. Uh, even in other parts of the United States, 
Uh, it became unpopular as the British occupied parts of uh, Maryland and, uh, of course, burned D.C. Uh, this was not a very popular war because people were suffering. And going into the war, you had a lot of people that weren't necessarily certain that war was the best course of action here. So again, not a popular war, substantial opposition to the Madison administration, substantial opposition to the American position of going to the war with the British, uh, not very popular. Uh, so uh, here's another major war that didn't have uh, the, the unanimous support like World War II. So we've got two. The first two major wars in American history both have substantial stumbling blocks to unanimous support for those wars. Moving forward in time, the next period we get to outside of the Indian Wars, um, which, uh, you know, you had like the Black Hawk War and some of those, uh, those wars, the Seminole War, uh, I'm, I'm not looking at those wars in particular. I'm focusing on the ones that you had, uh, you had to muster into service a lot of men to go fight. So the next one you get to a situation like that, you have the war with Mexico or the Mexican War, 1846 to 1848. And uh, this particular war was called Mr. Polk's War by a large percentage of the population who thought President Polk was abusing power by sending troops into the disputed territory and then uh, going and trying to acquire large swaths of territory from the Mexican government. Uh, The fact is, this war was not very popular. In fact, Whigs were openly talking about secession in 1846 and 1847, including among them Abraham Lincoln. Uh, who thought that secession was actually not a bad idea at that point. Uh, You had people saying that they hoped that American soldiers would would, uh, come back essentially in body bags, and that would show people how bad this war was. They were hoping for people to die. Uh, so that they could make political points and political hay out of this war. So you had a large percentage. The Whigs were a very prominent part of the American political scene, and they're making a lot of noise about this war being unconstitutional, being unjust. You had people like Joshua Giddings uh, saying that uh, this war was unholy. It was an unholy war. Uh, And so this was nothing new. The first two wars before this had substantial opposition. Oftentimes, this opposition, by the way, was partisan in nature. Uh, you know, particularly the War of 1812 and uh, the Mexican War, the opposition party to the president were the ones leading the charge, calling the war, you know, unconstitutional or unholy or whatever the case may be. Uh, and that's the way it tends to, to work. Uh, again, the fact that we had nearly unanimous support for World War II once the war began from both parties uh, is the anomaly in American history not the norm. And so I'm going to point that out with all the wars I'm going to go through. So you've got the Mexican War, not very popular, uh, and uh, it was a a difficult situation politically for the Democrat Party and President Polk. Move forward to 1861 to 1865, you've got the quote-unquote Civil War, or more accurately, the War for Southern Independence. And uh, this war, not very popular. In the North, not very popular at all. You had uh, Abraham Lincoln get only 55% of the popular vote in the North. Once the South couldn't vote, of course, Lincoln got less than 40% in the 1860 election. But there was a substantial opposition to the war in the in the northern states. This is why Lincoln called it the fire in the rear. And you had uh, members of Congress openly denouncing the administration, people like James Byard of Delaware, uh, among others. And so uh, you had a substantial pocket of opposition 
to the war effort in the North. They weren't necessarily pro-Confederacy, but they were anti-war. They didn't think the war was a good idea for the American government. They didn't think the war was a good idea for the U.S. Constitution. And you know what? They were right about that. Uh, Without a doubt, they were right about that. What about in the South? Uh, You did have some opposition to the war in the South, though the Southern population was, uh, I think, much more unified because of the circumstances than in the North. The South was being invaded in their mind, and so you did have a much more unified popular front uh, when it came to the war, even though there were some cracks in that, um, without, without question. As the war would drag on and become much more difficult, the Southern population would start to wane in their support for the war. Though the people that were the most ardent supporters of the war tended to be the women of the South. This is the amazing thing about it. They would actually you know, berate their men, shame them, into going and joining the military if they weren't already doing it. Uh, And so women were some of the most ardent Confederates you would find uh, in the South. Uh, They they definitely uh, were in favor of this war. In fact, I remember... Uh, doing some research, and I was uh, looking up some information on the CSS Jackson, which is an ironclad that was constructed in Columbus, Georgia, never launched. Well, never never saw combat. It was kind of launched. It wasn't armed yet. Uh, and then the ship was captured by the Union when the city of Columbus was burned and, and destroyed and then burned itself. Uh, but when this ship was being built, women from all over Georgia and Alabama were sending dollar, pennies, dimes, nickels, uh, dollars uh, to go help build the build the ship uh, in a way in a show of uh, patriotism and solidarity with the men on the front. Uh, this is a way of showing that hey, we're we're for this war, uh, we're for our men. And uh, after the war was over, when you look at these monuments, and, and I've talked about monuments on this podcast, uh, when you look at monuments, the people that were most uh, supportive of monuments were the women uh, because, they, again, they wanted to show their support for the cause that they couldn't go and bleed for, but yet uh, they suffered as much as the men. And, and the deprivations these people faced because of the blockade and other things were pretty pronounced. So uh, the South, you had, you had more support for the war than you did in the North, though, uh, again, at certain times, in certain pockets of the South, there was some resistance to it, without question. The, the, the uh, support for the war was not unanimous in the South, but much more so than in the North. But still, opposition was there. Now, move forward to the Spanish-American War. There certainly was opposition to the Spanish-American War. People like William Graham Sumner pointed out this is the conquest of the United States by Spain. Uh, And uh, even though you had a large number of people going out and saying, we're going to support this war, this is the first time we had had the chance for reconciliation between the sections. You've got Northerners and Southerners signing up to go fight together, and it's going to be a great time, and everyone's going to shake hands and go out and kill some Spaniards. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a unified popular support. There was opposition to that war, uh, namely getting into it in the first place, and the war only lasted about three months in terms of total combat, so there wasn't a whole lot of time to organize a substantial opposition to it, but you did have some in America. There were some people that were opposed to the the quote-unquote jingoistic policies of William McKinley and the Republican Party, Uh, and so uh, this was, uh, you know, something that was... um, quite common in America, as I've just talked about. You always had people that were against the war. Uh, And in this case, again, it came down on partisan lines. The Democrats tended to be less enthusiastic about the war than the Republicans, 
uh, and you did have some anti-imperialists. You had something called the Anti-Imperialist League, uh, and they were not strong proponents of the Spanish-American War. So here you have, again, no unified popular support. It wasn't unanimous. You had a lot of Americans who were against the war. Uh, moving forward into World War I, same thing. Americans didn't want, to, didn't want that war so much that they stayed out of it for three years before the United States finally gets involved. And in 1916, when Woodrow Wilson is campaigning for president, his campaign slogan was, he kept us out of war. So the important part to note here is that not going to war was the popular position in 1916. Now, Charles Evans Hughes, who was Wilson's opponent in 1916, did almost win that election. In fact, uh, no man got uh, 50% of the popular vote, and Hughes was very close to winning that election. But it was, it's thought that Wilson's insistence that he was going to keep the United States out of war put him over the top because Hughes was much more interested in American involvement in World War I than Wilson, uh, Wilson was, was, at least perception-wise. In fact, this is one of the reasons William Jennings Bryan eventually got out of the cabinet, because he knew Wilson was pushing for war behind the scenes, and Bryan could not support that, so he was out. Uh, but, uh, and Bryan, of course, was Secretary of State. So uh, we've got uh, the American population strongly against getting involved in the war, uh, but when we do get involved in the war, there is a fairly you know, robust uh, support for it, though there still was a pretty uh, vocal opposition. There's a reason why the United States Congress passed the Sedition Act in 1918, because you had a lot of people speaking out against the war. And the Wilson administration made it uh, commonplace to go round up people, throw them in jail, or deport them, those people who were not supporting World War I in the United States. Uh, without question, you had a large number of people that were doing that. So uh, in this particular case, uh, World War I was not popular among everyone in, the, in America, and uh, it was, again, the American tradition to be uh, opposed to war. Now, uh, the Anti-Imperialist League, which I mentioned, which was opposed to American entry in the Spanish-American War, was generally divided on World War I. Uh, there were more people uh, in favor of going to, to war with uh, Europe, with the Germany in Europe, than there were uh, against it. But uh, you did have some members of Congress, uh, you know, people like Claude Kitchen of North Carolina and others, who were certainly against getting involved in World War I. Okay, the next big war we've got is World War II. I've already mentioned how that was uh, essentially uh, unanimous, though going into the war, not so much. You had the America First Committee. You had people like Charles Lindbergh and others uh, who were opposing the war. May Charles Lindbergh made his famous speech on September 11, 1941, where he blamed uh, various factions for bringing the United States into a wartime footing, among them the, uh, the Jewish uh, faction. And he wrote in his private papers that he was going where angels dared to tread, uh, feared to tread in that point by, by calling out what he called the Jewish war lobby or, you know, in, that, in those terms. Uh, and you could understand why Jewish Americans would want to be involved in World War II. This is not a disparagement of Jewish people because Lindbergh would go and enthusiastically support the war once the United States was involved. It was, it was saying, look, I understand why these people want to be in the war, but this is not in the best interest of the United States. Uh, certainly with what was going on in Europe, uh, with the treatment of Jewish peoples in Europe, uh, there was some question in, that, in the Jewish community about whether the United States should stay out of this war. They need to be involved in their mind. And just like the banking interests, just like the Democrat Party, uh, the, he, Lindbergh, the internationalist, Lindbergh thought that 
that particular faction of American society was wanting to get the United States involved in the war, and there was nothing anti-Semitic about that. You're just pointing out something that's actually a fact. Uh, but this, of course, anytime you do that, uh, you're painted as someone who is against a particular segment of the population because you're pointing out the, the obvious. You're, you're stating what the fact is. Uh, and, of course, this is seen as sacrilegious nowadays to do that. You can't just, you can't call an orange an orange or an apple an apple. You got to, you know, go around it and say, well, you know, it, it kind of looks like an orange and it kind of smells like an orange and kind of tastes like an orange. But, nah, it's not really an orange. It's something else. Uh, so this is what we have to do today. Uh, now, uh, what about the Korean War? Again, opposition to the Korean War was pretty pronounced. Uh, not necessarily the most popular war. Truman had to use all kinds of underhanded tactics and, and persuasion tactics, techniques to get Americans to support it, including saying that North Korean bombers would be flying overhead at any moment to try to drop bombs on the United States. Now, North Korea didn't have any bombers at that time. There was no threat of that. Now, we could we could say, is North Korea a tangible threat today? Maybe. I mean, they've got nuclear missiles. Uh, that might be a real threat. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe that, that kind of language would be more appropriate for today. But the Cold War, in many ways, was sold to Americans who were just, who didn't want to be afraid. Uh, they were afraid of the potential uh, power of the Soviets, the communists, and what they could do to America and undermine America. Uh, so there was pretty sizable support for the, uh, for the Cold War, and of course the Korean War involved in that. But uh, there, was, there were a lot of Americans who weren't certain if they should be involved in hot wars, fighting other people's wars in a peninsula that nobody knew anything about, that the Russians had gotten booted out of at one point. I mean, why are we involved in Korea in the first place? This is now an imperial war, and people weren't necessarily uh, certain about it. I forgot to mention, you know, the Filipino-American War, which was also unpopular. Uh, the Boxer Rebellion, sending American troops into that, also unpopular. Uh, so we've had some of those. That was the early 20th century. And then, of course, we get the war in Vietnam, which everyone knows, not very popular at all. So sizable uh, opposition to that particular war among the quote-unquote counterculture uh, in American society. And that created the Vietnam Syndrome, which I've already talked about. But again... Not a whole lot of support for it uh, after 1968 in particular, after the Tet Offensive. And uh, you had, uh, it seemed like uh, the, the Americans had been lying to the, to the uh, United States public for a long period of time, the American government, about how the war was going and if it was going well or not. Uh, this was seen as uh, something that they had been, obviously, with body, you know, people getting killed on TV and body bags coming home. Uh, this was not a good situation, and people could not understand what the heck we were doing in Southeast Asia to begin with, fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. For what? I mean, that was always the question. Again, it's a war of empire. Just like, why were we fighting in the Philippines and trying to prevent the Filipino people from having self-determination during the Filipino-American War? I mean, what was the point of that? Uh, the people were asking these questions, and they're very good questions. Uh, you know, why is it Americans are fighting and dying in these areas? What, what is the real threat to America in these particular parts of the world? And then you move forward in time and you get to the conflicts in the Middle East as the United States gets involved there. And these are the same questions people are asking today. What is the American interest in Syria? What is American interest in Libya? What is American interest in Iraq? What is American interest in Iran? What is American interest in North Korea? Where do Americans have a vested interest in these places? Or have we just simply filled a power vacuum that was left by the fall and the collapse of the old European empires, namely Great Britain? Have we assumed the mantle that they once had? And is that a good position to be in for America? And I think that's where you know, Trump, 
made a lot of hay on the campaign trail by promising to to rein in American uh, foreign policy and get us out of some of these uh, quagmires, some of these awful places. This is why Ron Paul says things like foreign policy dictates domestic policy, because uh, if you have an expansive government, very powerful central authority, you're going to have, and they're interested in expanding American uh, influence around the world, that's going to influence domestic policy in terms of spending and other things. So uh, this is an important question to ask, and I think the point in this podcast is that anti-war is actually pro-American. Uh, anti-war is actually pro-American tradition. Uh, there's been one exception to the rule, and that is the, the, the interest in World War II once the war began, but not before it. And uh, you might even say the current war on terror, though there has been uh, some opposition to that as well, not vocal enough, I don't think but some opposition to it in terms of putting boots on the ground all over the world and getting the United States involved. This is one of the reasons why Trump was elected, because he made that statement. I was against the war in Iraq, uh, and I think we need to pull, bring the troops home. Uh, this is not a situation for Americans to be involved in. We can protect our borders here. And he's right about that if we would do the right things. So as we see this wave of anthem protests and other things and people saying, well, it's about the troops, about the flag, whatever the case may be, remember that uh, anti-war is actually pro-American. Uh, for much of American history, Americans have adopted that stance more often than not. And being the opposite of that is actually fact of, you know, you're figuring into this progressive uh, vision of America being pro-war. You know, the, the largest wars in American history have been started by the lefts, the progressives, not conservatives. Uh, in fact, anti-war is actually the conservative position to take, the American conservative position to take. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.